You're listening to Just One of the Guys, where I'm still wondering who the heck Ethel is. Hello, everyone. This is your action news reporter with all the news that is news across the nation on the scene at the supermarket. There seems to have been some disturbance here. Pardon me, sir. Did you see what happened? Yeah, I did. I was just standing over there by the tomatoes, and here he came, running through the pole beans. Through the fruits and veggies, naked as a jaybird. Ethel's over in the jams, jellies, preserves, and pickles. I hollered over her. I said, Don't look, Ethel! She dropped a whole jar of kumquats and fell back into the sweet midget, sir. Had us too late, she'd done been incensed. Here comes. Boogie dead, boogie dead. Hello and welcome to another super speedy episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. This is an internet radio show dedicated to bringing you coverage of the Green Lantern comics from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004, with a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, the two most non-naked Green Lanterns out there. Well, except for Kyle and some of his issues, because people like that. Uh, first of all, I'd like to apologize for my voice. I've got a bit of a scratchy throat, but I'm endeavoring to make sure that I get episodes out every week, so I'm not going to skip a week, despite the fact that I sound like a bag of dog manure. But what isn't a bag of dog manure, Segway School, paying off, is Green Lantern number 40. No, it's not quite that bad. It does, however, deal with The Flash. But not really. I mean... If it is the return of Barry Allen, Barry's acting kind of weird. I mean, he's trying to kill Hal and trying to destroy Central City, and he's even garnered the attention of a Dark Star, which is another, well, basically group of international, or not international, intergalactic space cops, much like the Green Lantern Corps. Uh, We'll get to them in other issues. Let's just say... This isn't as bad as issue number 37, but it's not the greatest issue either. But of course, we continue on with our Guy Gardner coverage, where we're going to be looking at Guy Gardner number 9, which is kind of a, well, a starting point for the new Guy Gardner series, where Will Jacobs takes over as writer for, well, about two issues before something even more awesome happens. Not to say that this issue isn't awesome, it's a really good story, where Guy basically has to head up his own little intergalactic hero team. Yeah, however, it's kind of subpar intergalactic heroes that we'll probably never hear of again. But at least it's not Jocasta, Piston, and Repo, so it's got that going for it. But before we get to my coverage of these two issues, let's go ahead and play a couple of trailers for some incredible podcasts. I'm certain that you and your family and pets and Maybe not your relatives. We'll enjoy. So, after we get done with the promos, we're on to Green Lantern number 40. Yeah, they <laughs> Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang.
Geeks Monthly Mondays. Available the third Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.libson.com. Ready to form Voltron! This is a job for Superman. Power Rangers! Right away, Michael. Autobots, transform! By the power of Grayskull! For the honor of Grayskull! Hello. I'm the Doctor. Charlie's Geekcast, coming January 1st, 2013, to charliesgeekcast.blogspot.com. And we're back. And what you heard there was the first trailer for the new show that's going to be coming out, oddly enough, on my birthday in 2013, of Charlie's Geekcast, the newest endeavor from Charlie Niemeyer, host of Superman in the Bronze Age, along with J. David Weeder, who does a segment, Superboy in the Bronze Age. Charlie's podcast is one of the myriad podcasts that I listen to, one of the myriad Superman podcasts that I listen to, and it's one of the best ones out there. And the fact that Charlie's a local Oklahoma boy also gives me a desire to go ahead and promote a show. Not only that, but the, the promo sounds awesome. It's covering a ton of stuff that I know I really enjoy, and I hope it's stuff that you'll really enjoy as well. He, he, he was talking about Doctor Who, he was talking about Transformers, She-Ra, He-Man, Batman, Superman. It sounds like a ton of fun, just random geekery, and I can't wait to hear it. Charlie puts on a great show with Superman in the Bronze Age. This is going to be awesome. Uh, set your calendars for the 1st of January, and hopefully the Mayan calendar is completely wrong and we'll get to it. But this time around, I don't have any emails. I uh, basically covered a ton of them last time out, and thank you all for writing in that time. I really appreciate it. had a couple emails you know, back and forth with Dave Walker, but they weren't particularly show-related. So uh, thank you all last time for writing in. I really appreciate it. But this gives me time to go directly into Green Lantern number 40. Green Lantern number 40 was cover dated late May 1993 with a release date on or about March 30th of 1993. The cover price, as usual, was $1.25 US, $1.60 Canada, and $60p UK. Title this time around was A Flash of Evil. Writer was Gerard Jones, penciler Claude St. Aubin, inker Romeo Tangal, letterer Albert de Guzman, colorist Anthony Tolan, assistant editor Eddie Bracanza, and editor Kevin Dooley. Streaking through the sky of Central City, Green Lantern Hal Jordan watches as Dark Star Farron Kolos delivers a Mazer Blast. Yes, Mazer, not Laser. Blast to the back of the head of the newly back from the dead for the first time, Barry Allen, a.k.a. The Flash. Thinking this is an attack on his return friend, Hal and Farron engage in a little intergalactic fighting McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, all rights reserved, until they both realize that they're duly appointed space cops. However, their tussle is broken up by the discovery that the Flash has disappeared. Begrudgingly parting ways, the two head off to search for the fastest man alive. Hal wonders what Barry's damage is when he gets a ring construct message from his Spidey Tracer that he placed on Carol. It seems that she's gone on a full biatch mode, kicking Tom Kalamaku out of the office that Hal is using for his business. Hal confronts Carol, thinking that Star Sapphire still might be controlling her, and tells her of his plans to boink and Coulter look like Olivia Reynolds. Surprisingly, Carol's okay with that, as she says that she can make Hal marry her if she wants to. Weirded out, Hal gets a beeping in his pants. But this time it's a message from the Justice League. Power Girl tells Hal that Barry is running amok in Central City and that Wally West is nowhere to be found. Hal heads off to try and reason with his old friend, just as Barry is telling the people in the Flash Museum to get out. Hal confronts the Scarlet Speedster and the continuation of the earlier fighting with Feitenstein, again copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, all rights observed, resumes. Tearing up the museum, 
Barry attacks Al with the weapons of his former foes, finally throwing a poison gas top at her hero. Al is prepared to bring down the building to stop the Flash, but he's interrupted by the return of the Dark Star, who tells Hal that he's going to take down the super-speeding Psycho. True to his word, Kolos fires a blast at Barry, blowing him to bits. Horrified by the supposed murder of his friend, Hal confronts the Crimson Cop, but Farron says that his blast shouldn't have been powerful enough to kill a human. Accusations abound until Hal gets another ring alert letting him know that Carol is acting all wonky again. Farron and Hal part ways, with the Dark Star being underwhelmed with the level of cooperation he got from the Green Lantern. Meanwhile, Barry Allen rises from the ground that he vibrated into in order to fool his adversaries. Satisfied that his ruse worked, Barry turns his attention back to the task at hand. Back at Montoya Bay, Hal drops in on a troubled Carol Ferris. Wondering if this is the Star Sapphire taking over again, Hal runs to his ailing former lover's side, only to find that the entity that is causing Carol's pain is none other than... The Predator. Well, I did say at the beginning of the show that this was a pretty superfluous issue. I mean, it's really not a Green Lantern issue because it doesn't deal with the storylines and things going on in Green Lantern all that much. And it really isn't a Flash issue because it only partially ties in with the whole storyline of what was going on with Wally West and the return of Barry Allen. So, the issue's kind of divided and it never really coalesces into one cohesive, entertaining issue. I mean, it's fine, but it's not to the level, it's not to the standards that I've been expecting out of the Green Lantern books. Pretty much all I can say of this issue is a blatant, stereotypical internet meh. Um, If you want to hear some other people talk about this issue, and people with British accents, and we're covering more of the Flash side of this issue, go check out Hey Kids Comics. Uh, They recently, about a month or so ago, probably a little longer than that, did their uh, coverage of the Return of Barry Allen storyline over in the Flash comics. That storyline was really good, but I think they were kind of confused about this issue as well. It really doesn't fit into the story, and it really doesn't add that much to it. So check out Hey Kids Comics if you want to know more about what's going on with Barry. But for those of you who want to know what's going on with this comic, we'll go ahead and get into my notes on the issue. Horrible segue. Uh, For starters, the cover, again, the word of the day is going to be meh. It's not that it's a bad cover. It's very dynamic. You've got uh, Hal holding back the Dark Star that we just found out about. uh, uh, Farron Kolos. Ridiculous name, but science fiction enough, uh, as he sort of tries to blast Barry Allen, and Barry's sort of coalescing and, you know, being engulfed by this sort of orangish lightning-type energy. It's not a bad cover, and Claude St. Aubin does a workmanlike job of drawing the characters. He does have a bit of perspective wrong with the hands of uh, Hal and Farron. They look a bit over-large. Uh, in fact, uh, Farron's hand, his left hand, is about as big as Hal's head, and it's not that far uh, forward in the foreground. Add that to the very generic yellow background, and it's really not a dynamic cover. It's, I guess it's eye-catching in the fact that the yellow's blinding you, but not eye-catching in the way that would make you want to buy the issue, I would think. Page 1, we get an opening splash of Farron, the... Uh, Dark Star blasting Barry with the uh, his masers, which is actually a term. A maser, I think, is 
an acronym for microwave amplify or microwaves amplified by stimulated emission of radiation. It's akin to what a laser is, which is light amplified by stimulated emissions of radiation. Uh, it's technically a correct term, but it just sounds kind of cooler than laser, I guess. Gives the uh, dark stars a distinctive feel. But the one thing that's really fabulous about this uh, cover or this splash page is Hal's amazing jazz hands. Yeah, Hal's doing jazz hands here, and it's really kind of off-putting. Page 3, panel 2. I guess this is really the first actual meeting of a Green Lantern and a Dark Star, at least in comic book continuity. And Hal has heard of them before, but he's kind of you know, boggled that there's more than one group of uh, space cops in the universe. And I'm saying, hey, Hal, it's, it's a big universe. There's room for more than one group of space cops, more than just the Green Lantern Corps. So, chill out a bit. Page 5, we get the uh, reintroduction of Carol, and she's acting kind of weird. I think Hal's thinking it could be one of two things. Either one, she's being possessed by an alien entity that's controlling her thoughts and emotions, or two, it's her special time of the month. I think those are the two options that Hal was probably thinking of. Now, my thought is it probably is the fact that Hal's been stringing her along all this time, and basically saying that he wants to be with her, and then he doesn't want to be with her, and that might have something to do with her acting a bit, oh, crazy. Then, more to uh, denote that Carol might be on this crazy kick, on page 6, panel 5, we get Carol saying, you know, I can make you marry me if I want to. Eek, that's that's a sort of creepy turn for Carol Ferris, and Hal's even a bit taken aback for it, for taken aback by it. And then the next panel, you know, Carol says that she didn't even realize that she said anything. So, yeah, something weird's going on with Carol. Skipping ahead a bit to the uh, fight scene with uh, Hal and Barry, on page eleven, panel two, we get Hal clamping Barry against the wall, and I guess he completely forgot that. Barry can vibrate his body and move through solid objects, which, granted, is a really neat effect, but the thing about it is it doesn't really work in a real physical world. If he's vibrating his entire body to be able to move between, you know, pieces of solid material, wouldn't he also be vibrating through the earth and hence just falling down Uh, just dropping into the ground. It's one of those things that we get with these phasing characters like Kitty Pride. I mean, if she phases through a door, if she's walking through a door and phases through it, wouldn't she basically fall into the ground and then have to phase up and crawl out of the ground? It's, It's one of those things that comic book physics just doesn't really take time to explain, and it sometimes doesn't work with me. It's a neat effect, it's a neat trick for the Flash characters and for the speedsters, but... The physics behind it just kind of bugs me. Page 12, we've got a really nice panel of the Flash speed, uh, basically speed streaking around uh, Hal Jordan and using all the different weapons of his rogue gallery. We've got uh, Mr. Element firing him with the elemental gun, the Mirror Master blasting with a mirror with his mirror ray, Heat Wave blasting with, blasting with a flamethrower, the Pied Piper with a horn, uh, Captain Cold with his cold gun, and Captain Boomerang with, of course, his boomerang. It's a neat image. I know I've seen this, like, on a cover of Flash Comics, or perhaps, uh, you know, just a a page in Flash Comics, but it's a really nice panel, and it's, it is, it, I know it's reminiscent of some Flash comic before. I just can't pick it out from my brain right now. But regardless, really good homage piece of artwork. Then on page 14, panel 3, we get the convenient thing that Barry just happens to have some uh, yellow on his costume, and that pretty much negates how putting him in a little cell, a Green Lantern construct cell, being held up in the air. He just breaks through it with the yellow lightning bolt on his uh, sleeve. So, not really thinking too straight there, Hal. Skipping ahead a bit to page 19, we get the confrontation between... uh, 
Colin, or I want to call him Colin Farrell, Farron Colos and Hal Jordan, and how they're both kind of wondering what's going on with each other. Uh, Hal's wondering why Farron is there to uh, protect the Earth, and Farron's wondering what the heck's going on in the Mosaic world, and it's all a bunch of ridiculousness. Uh, they both don't trust each other, and it's not a good thing. I'm I'm really hoping that there's never a crossover between these people that makes them have to work together. I mean, I think it'd be kind of awkward if something like that ever happened. And then finally, on page 22, we get the final splash page as the entity that was possessing Carol was none other than the Predator. Yeah, the sort of masculine side, and I'm using air quotes, uh, using it up to the microphone so you can hear them, the sort of masculine side that Carol Ferris was possessed with in earlier issues of Green Lantern prior to the crisis. So, there you have it. The Predator. He's back. Neat. (laughs) I mean... Not a bad issue, but not the greatest issue. And unfortunately, the fact that the Predator's in it, you know, kind of also brings it down a notch. But what's going to bring something up a notch is the Guy Gardner issue, which we're going to get to right after we take a little break and play a couple of promos for some of the most awesome podcasts on the internet today. Lancers, I've called you here to this unprecedented gathering because we face an unprecedented danger. An enemy we don't yet fully understand. It was for this moment that we were created. But I don't need to tell you your duty. I don't need to tell you who we are. Chosen by the Mystic Guardians of the Universe. Recruited from across the galaxy for their bravery and courage. The best and brightest joined to fulfill a solemn oath. In brightest day. In blackest night, no evil shall escape my sight. Let those who worship evil's might beware my power. Green Lantern's Light. Green Lantern's Light, a monthly podcast covering the adventures of Hal Jordan, John Stewart, Guy Gardner, and the entire Green Lantern Corps from 1984 through today. Say the oath. Join the core. Green Lantern's Light. Available monthly at greenlanternslight.com. The dawn of an age. The founding of a family. You know we haven't done enough research into the effects of cosmic rays. We've got to take that chance. Conditions are right tonight. Let's go. They're penetrating the ship. Our shielding isn't strong enough. I feel like I'm burning up. Too heavy. Can't move. Too heavy. We're all alive. I feel so strange. You're fading away. I can't see you at all anymore. Look what's happened to you. You're changing. Oh, Reed, not you too. What happened to me? To all of us? I can fly. We gotta use that power to help mankind, right? So was born the Fantastic Four. For soon, the Mole Man will have the entire world in his power. I am the mightiest living mortal on Earth. And now, mankind shall feel that might. The Fantastic Four. Little do they dream they're the palms in the hands of Dr. Doom. The Human Torch will be the Puppet Master's next victim. You athletes can't change the way I can. I've been expecting you. 
For I am the thinker. I vow never to return, my lord, until the fantastic four are no more and the fantalot is no more. You're in the presence of the awesome Ralatots, King of Kings, Master of Men, and Lord of the Seven Sons. Fool, you're just a muscular freak, blind or hulk. Stop! You must not enter the castle of Diablo. My journey has ended. But it shall sustain to the living drain of all elemental life. So speak the lactus. Flame on! It's clobbering time! The Fantastic Four from the very beginning witnessed the origins of a legend. The Fantastic Cast. FFcast.lipsin.com. And welcome back. So let's go ahead and start off with our coverage of Guy Gardner number 9 which was cover dated June 1993 with a release date on or about May 4th of 1993. The cover price was $1.25 US, $1.60 Canada, and 60 p UK. Title this time around was The Medusa Plague. Very Star Trek sounding title. Writer was Will Jacobs, penciler Joe Staten, inker Terry Beatty, letterer Albert Guzman, colorist Anthony Tolan, assistant editor Eddie Braganza, and editor Kevin Dooley. Chillaxing in his apartment, Guy Gardner is shocked by the sudden entrance of Buck 50, carrying the battered body of one of the gardeners of the universe. Guy asks what's going on, but before he can get an answer, the group is teleported up to the Palandrodna... Try that again. Palandrodna Lab spaceship. Buck 50 explains that the alien was attacked while investigating a crisis in a distant space sector, and now they need their best operative to check it out. Guy grumbles that he won't be very effective without his power ring, but the gardeners send him anyway, being an interdimensional dumbwaiter. Emerging in a distant part of the universe, Guy and his alien sidekick climb a hill of a strange world and witness a futuristic city engulfed in a brutal war. Guy asks what he's supposed to do, and the palindrodna lap, Rags, says he only needs to find out why this is happening. It seems that many space sectors that have been living in peace and harmony have suddenly broken out into all-out self-destruction. In order to find out what is happening, the gardeners have assembled a team of heroes, including Lord Blaze, Stickfast, and Nocturne, with Guy Gardner as their leader. As with all meetings of heroes, a fight breaks out to see who should be in charge. And of course, Guy is the one to instigate it. But just as Guy is making his point clear by punching the f*** out of his teammates, a bomb tears their headquarters apart, and Guy is left pulling the heroes out of the wreckage. Outside of the trashed headquarters, the Palandrodnalap Rags further explains the strange tales of war, mass suicide, and environmental destruction to Guy. Rags says that they need to capture a member of the warring race in order to determine the cause of these tragedies. And as luck would have it, some members of the race are just coming over the hill, albeit heavily armed and followed by a massive tank. The team takes a mortar shell as one of the soldiers blasts Nocturne with a ray gun. Blaze and Stickfast attack while Guy tries to get them to capture one of the soldiers. But in an Alanis Morissette example of irony, Guy is the one who is captured by the soldier and beaten within an inch of his life. At the last moment, a blast from the power ring of Tim Curry Wait, no. Boudica destroys the robotic soldier that was bent on breaking Guy. Wondering why the BBW with the GL ring is investigating the incidents, Guy and Boudica share notes on what they've discovered and make a well-reasoned plan to tackle the threat. <laughs> no. They engage in a little war of the sexes, fighting McFightstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, all right, sir, until Boudica ring blasts Guy into the sky. Peeved that he's being shown up again by a Green Lantern, Guy mourns his plight, until his ring shows a sudden return of power. Suddenly, Guy gets it. The yellow ring of Sinestro is powered by Green Lantern energy. So the more he fights the Green Lanterns, the more powerful his ring gets. And since now Guy knows... And knowing is half the battle. Guy ring constructs of a little wardrobe change for Gutka which sets the tassel-wearing tart into a rage and causes her to ring-punch Guy, completely powering up his ring. But just as Guy is reveling in his victory, he notices a strange alien directing the soldiers on the ground and a giant spaceship hovering overhead. Replacing her outfit with her GL uniform, Boudicca clocks Guy again, 
but Guy tells her to stop and look at the invaders that are possibly from space. Neither the Green Lantern nor the other heroes can see the enemies that Guy does, but finally they do see someone they need to kill. Unfortunately, that someone is Guy Gardner. Like I said at the beginning, here in this story we get Will Jacobs taking over the book for Gerard Jones, and to be honest, it's not a bad transition. In fact, Jacobs puts a smack dab in the middle of a grand storyline dealing with universal conflict and an unseen alien force. You add to that, you've got great Joe Staten art, and the sort of wicked sense of humor being written for Guy, and you've got a really good start for this, this next chapter in Guy's solo career. But with that, let's go ahead and move on to notes. We'll start with the cover, which is a nice cover of, uh, let's see, Green Lantern, Tim Curry, Conan the Ferengi, and John Spock getting together with Guy Gardner to fight some weird alien phallic spaceship. It's a weird collection of characters on the cover, but we'll get to know them more, I guess, in the issue. Page one, we get a nice enough opening splash with Guy sitting in his apartment having... The typical bachelor meal of beer and potato chips as Buck 50 brings in the possibly dead little palindrodna lab character. I don't know. The one thing about this cover that, or not this cover, but this uh, splash page that kind of speaks to me is that Guy's really a manly man because it takes a manly man to walk out of a liquor store with a six pack of Australian wombat or wombat Australian lager that's in a giant pink can. You drink that kind of booze and people are going to look at you strange. Page two. Okay, the uh, goofy palindrome type names are wearing a bit thin. For the uh, name of the spaceship, we've got the Dropin... Dromoprolinlipso. I'm probably mispronouncing that. And then for the character's name, we've got... Gragapopnidralip, or I don't There are these awkward alien names that are kind of neat to look at, but really incredibly hard to say. Which is fine because I guess the character that Guy teleports to the planet with is named Ragnus something, whatever. And Guy, much like the reader, just shortens it to Rags, which works fine with me. Page 6, we get introduced to the Guy Gardner Gardner, I guess the Guy Gardner Gardner's Hero Corps, which includes uh, Stickfast, which is basically this big, sort of hulking blob type person with a very Ferengi looking face. Ferengi from Star Trek The Next Generation, if you didn't know. Then we get Nocturne, who's kind of a black version of Rom the Space Knight. Very tall, but all his armor is black, and he's got that sort of weird visor thing that Rom had as well. And then, of course, Lord Blaze is a sorty, sort of stocky, chunky-looking guy with Vulcan ears, and he looks like he's just basically radiating sort of yellow energy. They're interesting designs for not really that interesting characters. Plus, also... I don't know if this Lord Blaze is supposed to be related in any way to the Blaze that happened in the Blaze-Satanus War over in the Superman titles. Mm, I don't recall the character looking anything like this, so maybe this is just the one-off character that really has nothing to do with those other characters. Page 7. In order to shore up the dissension in the ranks with uh, all these heroes, Guy decides to take charge, and his dialogue here is pretty good. It goes... I can read these dorks like a book. Sure, they act tough as hell, but inside I bet they're insecure, scared, convinced that they're not good enough and they'll never be good enough. Always having to prove themselves. Yeah, I can read these guys all right, because they're just like me. Problem is, I gotta prove to them that I'm good enough to lead them, and maybe at the same time, prove to... And then, of course, we get the uh, aliens bombing the building, so guys' thoughts are derailed, but... It's interesting that Guy sees the bravado of these other alien heroes sort of akin to his own, and he realizes that the bravado is essentially just covering up the idea that they're really 
kind of insecure with themselves. And in order to make themselves look heroic, they have to overdo the entire being macho, being a hero thing. Guy's starting to come into the idea that his character doesn't really need to be that macho and that have that much bravado as well. But he's also realizing that other people who do the same thing probably are in the same boat that he is. Moving along to page 12, we see some of the heroic powers of these characters. As the aliens are attacking them, unfortunately we don't get to see what Nocturne's power is, because he gets gunned down at the very beginning. But Lord Blaze seems to have a sort of human torch type of heat weapon that he fires out of his hand. Of course, it seems to be emanating from his from his entire body because Guy's trying to carry him away from the explosion, and as he's firing, Guy's feeling the heat from his body. And then Stickfast, well, Stickfast is basically like Bouncing Boy from the Legion of Superheroes. He basically inflates his entire body and turns into a giant bouncy ball with with legs. You know, if you can imagine, oh, what is it, Mr... Um, Mr. Creosote from the uh, Monty Python film, The Meaning of Life, and imagine him bouncing on top of uh, these aliens, then you kind of get what Stickfast looks like. Page 16, as Boudica and Guy are beginning to fight, uh, Boudica gets a little, uh, a little personal with Guy and calls him Limp Ring, obviously substituting the most powerful weapon in the universe for the most powerful weapon in Guy's pants. There you go. Then on page 17, panel 2, we finally get the realization of the ring that Guy's wearing needs to be recharged by Green Lantern energy. And that totally makes sense to me. Um, that Sinestro would use the ring to battle the Green Lanterns, have to absorb the Green Lantern energy in order to stay recharged. Now, it's not in the sort of blackhand way where he's got a big sort of cosmic vacuum cleaner rod that shoots out Green Lantern energy, but I like the concept of it, that Sinestro was smart enough to allow his ring to be recharged by Green Lantern energy, which means gives him an impetus to constantly be fighting the Green Lanterns. However, I guess, you know, 20-some-odd years later, that's going to be completely retconned by he who shall not be named. Page 19, panel 3, we get Guy Gardner using his ring to adjust Boudicca's uh, outfit, and not that Boudicca's outfit wasn't skimpy to begin with. I mean, it was skimpy, but in a sort of warrior, barbarian queen type way. Now it's kind of in a floozy way, with a... uh, very frilly halter top and very, very short uh, high-cut briefs and yellow fishnet stockings. Of course, all of it's yellow because it's coming from Guy's ring as a construct, but surprisingly, it actually makes Boudica look somewhat attractive, which is really hard to do in this comic. Page 20, panel 3. After getting fully charged from the wonderful ring punch from Boudica, Guy suddenly is able to see these aliens that are directing the alien forces that the heroes are trying to stop from fighting. And it's a really kind of neat design. They've got basically a sort of brown skin with a very snake-like Medusa head. And uh, they've got a weird eye in the center of their chest. So it gives them a really otherworldly feeling and a kind of feeling of something that's kind of watching you. It's kind of akin to if they took the Beholder, which was this a this character, not I guess character, this monster from Dungeons and Dragons, and given it an actual physical body. Kind of creepy. Then on page 21, it looks like the uh, weird alien Medusa things are using an SCP field to uh, cloak their presence. Um, an SCP field from Hitchhiker's Guide, the somebody else's problem field. It's what the people use to cloak the heart of uh, gold. Uh, never mind, I've, I've out-nerded myself again. 
Then on page 22, it seems that the weird aliens are also mind-controlling all the rest of the heroes, and as they clamor for Guy's death, uh, Boudica looks like she's going to smother Guy to death. However, it looks like she's going to smother Guy to death by sitting on his face. Yeah, there's a demise that I'm pretty certain none of us would want to go through. But that finishes up my notes. Let's go ahead and take a look at the ads that they had in these issues and see what kind of neat stuff they had to sell to us. And on the front and side cover, we have the yellow and purple image of Beldar and Primate Conehead, played by Dan Aykroyd and Jane Curtin, in the uh, Saturday Night Live movie, The Coneheads. Again, not the greatest Saturday Night Live movie, but definitely not the worst either. Then a few pages in, we've got an advertisement for the Super Nintendo game of Sim Earth, declaring that you've got the whole world in your hands. And basically, if you've played any of the Sim games, you basically get to take a character or a person or whatever and rule their life, make them go to work or whatever. In this one, I guess you get to create your own planet. It says that you can uh, create forests, swamps, jungles, uh, dinosaurs, mammals, reptiles... You know, give them uh, varying levels of intelligence. It sounds like a neat game. I never really got into the sim games because, especially for the consoles, those sort of long-playing games where you'd have to save and create things just really didn't appeal to me. I was more of a action shoot 'em up type person. Next page, we've got the Brock's Rocks page with the Poochie analog in a dinosaur uniform of Rocky D, who loves to eat rocks. Brock's Rocks. Horrible. Then we get an ad for the game Flashback, the quest, for identi- the quest for Identity, which they claim is the first CD-ROM game in a cartridge. I remember playing this game for the Sega Genesis, which is what it's advertised for, and it was a pretty interesting game. But again, it was mostly a side-scroller where you had to work your way through this weird alien landscape and everything. Plus, it had some interesting cutscenes in there. The graphics were really nice, and the gameplay was fun, but again, it was one of those really long, drawn-out games that just didn't hold my interest. But I will admit, uh, from what I remember of the game, it was a really good-looking game, especially for the 16-bit era. So, there you go. Unfortunately, video games took a sudden downturn with this next ad, as we get John Leguizamo and... Bob Hoskins and Super Mario Brothers. Yeah, not the best translation of video games to movies that has ever happened. Uh, Maybe not the worst, but thank God it wasn't done by Uwe Boll. Then, speaking of horrible things from Nintendo, we've got Mega Man 5. And I recall, if I recall, after like Mega Man 3, the Mega Man games pretty much went sort of spiraling down the tube. Maybe I'm mistaken in this uh, assessment, but I think I remember Mega Man 5 not to be one of the better outings of that game. However, on the next page, we had a cool ad for the Colorado uh, Mile High Comic Store, and we get some images of the store, and it looks like they've got a pretty good selection of back issues and everything. But one of the neat things that they have is an upcoming autograph party uh, that happened in 1993, and it was the Superman Lives Tour. And they had a bunch of Superman artists and creators there, including Murphy Anderson, John Bogdanov, Mike Carlin, Doug Hazelwood, Dennis Yankee, Gil Kane, Julia Schwartz, Louise Simonson, Walt Simonson, Roger Stern, and Kurt Swan. Holy cow. That would have been the place to be if you could get all those guys together and actually get them to talk about the Superman characters. That is a impressive list of people uh, who are behind the Superman books. And you can imagine at this time with the uh, death of Superman going on, Superman was definitely a hot topic or a hot property. So this would have been the place to be. A few pages in, we get, uh, I guess, basically a 
copy of the Venus de Milo, basically the armless statue of the uh, goddess Venus, with a uh, rockster guitar lashed around her. And the uh, ad says, one of the few people who can't play the rockster instantly. And it's an advertisement for a uh, basically an electric, an electric guitar, the uh, rockster guitar system, which also comes, I guess, with a, a mini amplifier with it as well. 229 plus shipping and handling would get you this uh, awesome guitar. And the ad claims that within minutes you'd be able to rock out like the greatest rock stars that ever played, simply because you picked up this guitar. I doubt the verisimilitude of the statement, but it's there. The next page has the American Comics and Entertainment ad for the various different comics, and the big one right now is the Superman Returns comics. Uh, they've also got a lot of image and value ones. Uh, image including Max, Operation Urban Storm, and Spawn. Plus, Valiant also has Bloodshot, Harbinger, and Turok number one, which, if I recall, basically was overprinted to the point of ridiculousness and now can basically be found in the same landfills that the ET cartridges are in. Plus, it's got its list of hot comics, uh, including such uh, titles as Holy Cow, Eternal Warrior number one, which I guess has got a gold foil cover, is retailing for $150. $150 for a comic. Okay, obviously this was the 90s and things were really overselling. Solar number one was selling for 30 and the uh, limited edition was selling for 75 as well as the limited edition of Rye, or Ray, R-A-I, uh, issue number nine with the gold uh, cover, I guess, was selling for $75. Um, Magnus number zero, uh, with no card, was selling for 50 while Magnus number 12 was selling for 100 does anyone remember these books? Are these really actually worth something? $100 or $150 for an Eternal Warrior comic? Where's Eternal Warrior now? Sad. The Guy Talk page is pretty truncated, with really no letters from anyone, but basically Guy saying that there's going to be a change in the future, and... It's got a nice picture of Guy and Boudicca flying off. Uh, I think that's the uh, cover to the next issue. After that, we get the hodgepodge page with the same old stuff that we're used to. And underneath it, we've got a quarter-page ad for Bloodlines. Yeah, I guess it's that time, and Bloodlines is coming. So, look for Bloodlines. The back inside cover has got some ads for the Super Nintendo and Nintendo versions of uh, Off-Road and RC Pro-Am. Uh, they were pretty fun games. I uh, just recently, on the uh, S-Sega website, the emulator site, played me some Super Off-Road. Uh, that's the one where you get to pick a truck or a car and race it around this dirt track and jump over things. It was a fun game, and I think it was a really fun port. So I'm betting that the Super Off-Road for the Super Nintendo system was pretty entertaining as well. And then finally on the back outside cover, we get Crash, and we get these two Crash Test dummies flying out of a Crash Test car and uh, running into, what, a fire hydrant, I guess? And it's an advertisement for the game Crash Test Dummies. If you didn't know, back in the uh, early 90s, there was an ad campaign where people were encouraged to buckle up in their cars, and basically these two characters in crashed as dummy suits would come out and show them what would happen if they didn't buckle up in cars. This eventually led to a cartoon, if I remember, and eventually also led to a video game. And This is a video game where I guess you crash cars and make the crashed dummies fly out of them and injure themselves. No idea. I never played the game, but I, I like the band. They were pretty good. Plus, I guess, you know, ties to comic books. They had a song about Superman, but most people know their song about the sort of MMMMM Campbell soup thing. Yeah. 
I can't sing it because the guy's got a really, really bass voice. I, I just can't do that. But that's about it for ads. Uh, once again, this comic, as well as the Green Lantern comic, have not been collected in any way, shape, or form. Disappointing. But the one thing that's certain to not disappoint is next week's issue of Just One of the Guys. Issue out. Issue out of Just One of the Guys. Where we're going to be covering Green Lantern number 41, which won't be dealing with uh, the Dark Stars and a whacked-out Barry Allen, but it will be dealing with the Predator and not the Arnold Schwarzenegger Predator, the Green Lantern character Predator. So it might be good or it might not. Your, your mileage may vary. But Guy Gardner is going to be awesome because Guy is going to be teaming up with Boudica and they're going to go kick a little weird Medusa-headed alien butt. So, thanks everyone for listening. Thanks for downloading. And come back next week for another episode of Just One of the Guys. And we'll see you then. Bye. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingram. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the tendencies of the internet that comic books could be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback on the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed, too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at justoneoftheguys, all one word, dot libsyn, spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N, dot com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast and be sure to leave a review. I'd love to read it on the next episode. You can also search for me on Facebook. I mean, you won't find me there because I don't have an account on Facebook. But if you have enough free time to listen to me babble on about funny book characters, you obviously can spare some time to wander around on Facebook. Thanks for downloading and listening and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Gods, a Green Lantern podcast. The opening music for today's show was Ray Stevens' The Streak. It can be found on a myriad number of albums. Probably his best would be Ray Stevens' all-time greatest hits. But if you want to go listen to Ray Stevens, or if you want to go download the song... I suggest you go to the Two True Freaks website at twotruefreaks.libson.com, click the Amazon banner at the top of the page, and head on over to Amazon, download the song, or buy the album from Ray Stevens. Plus, Amazon is probably your one-stop shopping stop, that made no sense, for any myriad type of gifts that you'd like to get for the holiday season. So make sure any time that you plan on going over to Amazon.com, you do it through the Two True Freaks site, and make sure that Chris and Scott Get a little bit of that kickback money. Uh, n- not illegal kickback money, though.